Amen. Praise the Lord, everyone. Praise God. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord today. And uh, I'm especially happy as uh, yesterday I got to celebrate the 11th anniversary of my marriage to the beautiful, wonderful Jessica. And I am truly blessed to have her in my life. I could not have gotten this far without her. As the scripture says that he that findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth the favor of the Lord. And uh, kind of along those lines, I'll be kind of speaking a bit about uh, the subject of, of love and of even of marriage. You might get a little bit of a marriage uh, seminar out of this. Uh, but I want to share with you what the Lord gave me. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 13. And we will be reading verses 34 to 35. And this, uh, this subject is something that's very dear to my heart. It really derives itself from an experience I had some 13 years ago, uh, 13, 14 years ago, where the Lord really gave me a revelation in regards to his love. And that revelation has propelled me through every circumstance I have ever confronted or faced. It has defined me as the man that I am today. And I want to try my best to uh, explain and to deliver to you what the Lord gave to me on that day. And I believe it's going to help somebody. If you have John 13, verse 34, say amen. John 13, verse 34 says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. I want to read verse 34 again to, to really emphasize the main point of this message. That a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Today I want to preach the message simply entitled, A New Commandment. A New Commandment. Now, I know that doesn't necessarily make you want to shout just hearing that. <laughs> but when you really fully comprehend what this new commandment is, it will change your life. This is, this is the, the, the principle that has defined me as a man into adulthood. And it's something that's very dear to my heart. And I do my very best not to get too emotional over this. Uh, because it is one of the most important subjects that we could ever address in the body of Christ. And I want to enter uh, into this message with prayer. And to en enlist the aid of the Holy Spirit. I can do nothing of myself. I just want God to have his way. And I want to reach someone here today with the love of God. The Holy Spirit is desiring to bring healing and restoration through his love. And I believe that this message is going to help you in that healing process. Let us pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, not just because you woke me up this morning and started me on my way. I don't thank you necessarily just because you've given me a bed to sleep on, that you've given me a beautiful wife and, and children, that you have given me this wonderful assembly, the body of Christ here in the church, or that you've healed my body, have kept me all these many years. But that which brings me to my knees is knowing that you love me. Father, I thank you so much that you love us, that you loved us even in our fallacies, even in our frailties, even in our mistakes, even when we were unfaithful. God, that you are faithful. I need no one, oh God, to prime me or to give me a reason to worship you 
in spirit and in truth. I need only think of the fact that you love me. God, that you love me. That you love us. Father, I pray, Lord God, let your love flow through me to this congregation. That they may see and understand and comprehend how great the depth, the height, the breadth, the length, the width of your love. Oh God, that your love would saturate this congregation and all that are within my hearing. Father, we give you the praise and the glory. And oh Lord, I honor you today. I honor your love with this message. This is my way, oh God, of showing my gratitude to you for loving a wretch like me. I thank you and bless you. And in Jesus' name, let the church of the living God say, Amen. You may be seated. There was an article by the BBC called Teenage Elephants Need a Father Figure. It's a very interesting title for an article. But in this article, it was uh, addressing a scientific study on the behavior of elephants and something very interesting that was happening in their behavior. I want to read you this article. When Gus Van Dyke was an ecologist at Polanisburg National Park, South Africa, he was worried by a series of attacks on the park's rhino. As described in the BBC Earth podcast, badly mutilated rhino carcasses were discovered, over 50 in all, with wounds on the top of the shoulders and neck, which suggested, which suggested worryingly elephants. Elephant attacks on rhinos are not unknown, and jostles at watering holes are fairly common. But this volume of attacks was unusual. Further investigation by Van Dyke revealed that the suspects were a group of adolescent male elephants. Their teenage years are the same as ours, about between 12 and 20 years old, who were clearly experiencing heightened aggression. This out-of-control gang of elephants between 15 and 18 appeared to be what's called in must. This is a unique state to elephants in which young males, usually in their 20s, are flooded with reproductive hormones. The scary part is, as well as the urge to mate going into overdrive, the males become very aggressive to the extent that two males in must will fight to the death, tipping each other over so they can stab their victim with their tusks. The normal safeguard is when an elephant in must encounters a bigger bull elephant. He immediately drops out of must as he knows his testosterone cannot compete. These were late adolescent elephants, though without the experience, and I want you to hear this, without the experience of operating as a male in a large social group. Van Dyke realized that must was the key to stopping this delinquent gang. So the decision was to either control it artificially or to use it naturally. The answer he felt was to put a natural stopper on the must by introducing big bull elephants. And he was right. Six Bull elephants, large bull elephants, were introduced from Kruger National Park who towered over the adolescents. And literally within hours, the teen thugs had dropped out of must. No more rhinos have been killed since by rampaging youngsters. Now you're wondering, why in the world am I reading you this? Look at this, listen to this conclusion. This must story was used in an American academic paper as an example in human adolescence of the importance of a stable society and a father figure to provide boundaries for teen males. Now listen to this closely. The young males that were getting into these elephant gangs had no template of good social behavior and were at the mercy of the rampaging hormones, which was putting them at much risk, as much risk as those around them. The fact of the matter is that these elephants, these adolescent elephants, 
they were overwhelmed by their hormones, by their, their desires, their natural lusts. And the reason why was because there was no father figure, there was no example that was there to show the elephants how to behave. And because there was no example to follow, they, be, they engaged in reckless behavior and began mutilating and killing everything in their path, overwhelmed and driven by their desires. Even so, many of us were reckless and out of control under the influence of our own desires and lusts because we didn't, even, we didn't either have a role model to show us or we had terrible role models that were there that showed us the wrong way to live. Now, I can tell you the truth that I was a high school teacher for three years and I saw that this, how this generation has been affected from the absenteeism of father figures and good role models. Instead, people are deriving their identity and their ability to function by whatever that they can see. And so they look to the athletes, they look to the musical artists, the rappers, and they emulate and imitate them in order to derive an identity and to derive a way of living, to find out how to live. And the fact of the matter is, without a good example, without a good role model, it does not matter what rules there are, it does not matter what laws there are, that you will engage in reckless behavior governed by your own desires, your passions, and your lusts. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The story that I've just told you is showing you the necessity for examples and role models. Because without examples and role models, everything else becomes useless. Doesn't matter how educated you are or how informed you are regarding the laws of the land. Without there being an example to show you how to implement and how to apply the principles, it's all useless. I want to give unto you three dangers of, the, of not having a good example, of having a lack of of examples. Number one, as I've just stated, is that principles, rules, and laws are meaningless without an example demonstrating how they are to be applied or followed. Because demonstration connects the abstract and theoretical to the tangible and the actual. We can talk theory, we can talk ideas, but until I see someone do it, it's just that. It's just an abstract idea and there's no connection and there's no true meaning and understanding as to what a law or what a principle is. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 4, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words or man's wisdom, of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of the of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. One of the reasons why this generation is being lost is because they do not have examples as to how to implement the principles of the scripture. And because there are no examples, there is no relevancy or applicability to to when the word of God is preached or when it's being taught. And because of that disconnect, they run away or they flock to something else that seems more applicable or seems more relevant. Without an example, laws, rules, and principles are meaningless. 
Number two, without an example, is that there's a misinterpretation, a corruption, or an abuse of the laws. This is exactly what happened with the Pharisees and with the Sadducees, who were teachers of the laws of Moses. But because there was no true example as to how to truly apply the word of God, apply the laws, who fulfilled the laws perfectly, this left it open to interpretation, and it left it open to abuse. Jesus chastising the Pharisees, he says in Mark chapter 7, verse 13 making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which you've delivered and many such like things do ye when you see someone demonstrate the principle and see it being applied there is no misunderstanding there's no misrepresentation and no abuse of the principle without demonstration there can be misunderstanding misinterpretation and misapplication we are in dire need of examples in the body of Christ dire need of men and women of God who walk in holiness and righteousness who show what it really means to be a child of God and without examples it doesn't matter how many rules I give you doesn't matter how many principles and laws I give you if you don't see me living it it's meaningless and instead you'll be governed by your desires and by your lusts and by your passions the third danger of not having an example is lawlessness What you saw from those elephants is that because they had no example, there was lawlessness. They began mutilating and destroying anything that was in their path because there was nothing to show them how to live as an elephant. In Judges 17 verse 6, the Bible gives a very interesting analysis of the state of the nation of Israel. It says in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes because there was no leadership there was no example as to how they are to live to implement the principles and the laws of God there was mayhem everyone else was the referent for what is right in their own eyes this is the state of the nation of Israel they had laws and knew what they were they knew what the laws were however because they didn't have an example of someone applying them perfectly they descended into either idolatry or heresy. You look at the history of the nation of Israel. And when they had somewhat of a good example, a decent king, the nation would follow after Yahweh. The moment the, the, the government switched, the administration switched, they fell into idolatry and heresy. Why? Because they did not have a good example. And even the good examples were flawed and were full of sin, were breaking the commandments as well. Even the guy who gave the commandments broke the commandments. Moses, who gave the law, disobeyed God in hitting the rock twice when he was supposed to speak to the rock. No one, there was no good example as to how the law was to be applied. And because of that disconnect, no one knew how to do what God said. God said, do this, and God said, thou shalt do this, and thou shalt not do that. But because they saw no perfect example showing them how to apply it, they could not themselves apply it. So God then sent the perfect example. The priests, the prophets, the kings, they were inept. They were incapable of fully showing how to live the word of God. So God then sent the perfect example being himself. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus speaking says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Colossians 1.14 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Christ came to fulfill the law and to show us how it's supposed to be applied. Because if you don't know the how, then you'll never do it. You'll never do it. 
It's not till you get an example. And when you get an example, anything is possible. Uh, there was a lady, I believe her name is uh, uh, Kara Brookins. She was a single mother, had four children, had two divorces, had fled an abusive relationship, was being stalked by a man. And she wanted to get independence. And you know what she did? She wanted a home of her own. She didn't know how to, she didn't uh, um, have the funds necessary to buy the house that she needed to support her four kids. So you know what she did? She found some examples. She went on YouTube and watched every YouTube video available on how to build a house. And that single mother with four children built a, f- a 3,500 square foot, five bedroom house by herself with her children. And she did it by watching examples on YouTube. Because she had an example and show, someone showing her how to do it, she was able to build a whole house, the plumbing, the electric, all that stuff, the, the sheetrock, the drywall, everything, the roof. She did it all with her four kids. The youngest was only two. And there's a bit of the child, he's laying cement. <laughs> and because they watched an example, because an example can communicate the principle better than any orator can. Better than any articulation of words or expressions or phrases can. When you can see it done, when you see it demonstrated, your brain is able to capture it and is able to incorporate it in its everyday life. Now, with that as a foundation, let us look at the two greatest laws of the scripture. Matthew 22, verse 36. Master, this is a Pharisee asking Jesus. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two laws, or these two commandments, hang all the law of the prophets. There was over 610, roughly 613 laws that were in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, the Torah. And Jesus summed them up with just two of them. He selected two of them from that sample. And he was able to then show the whole of the law. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all of your soul, and all of your might. And to love your neighbor as yourself. He summed them up with those two statements. However, there is a huge problem that often arises whenever we try to apply these principles. These are the two greatest commands. You fail in these, you failed everything. Imagine taking a test and you just have two questions on the test. You think, oh, this should be easy. What are those two questions that are really hard? You miss one, you just you got an F automatically. <laughs> you got two laws. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And there's a huge problem with the two laws that we that whenever we try to apply them. Number one, how do I love my neighbor as myself if I don't love myself? Let's deal with that one. How can I love my neighbor as myself if I don't love myself? What if I hate myself? What if I hate hate the way that I look? Hate the way that I think? Hate where I live? Hate my life? What if I hate myself? Then how can I love my neighbor as myself? Problem number two, if I don't love myself, how can I love God with all my heart, soul, and mind? 1 John 4.20 If a man say I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath seen? So if I can't love myself, then I can't love my neighbor. And if I can't love my neighbor, according to this verse, I can't love God either. 
Which means I failed the test on both questions. What do you do when you don't love yourself? What do you do when you're insecure? What do you do when you feel vulnerable? What do you do when you hate looking at the reflection in the mirror? I know what that's like. I know what it's like to avoid a mirror because you hate what you see. I know what it's like to, to avoid pictures because you hate yourself. You think you're unlovable. You think you're unattractive. You think you have nothing of value to offer to anyone else. I know what that feels like because I've been there. And people who don't love themselves, they treat, them, they treat others the way they treat themselves. The reason why you're so hateful towards others, you're so angry towards others, you're so mean towards others is because you hate yourself. And we've got a lot of people in the church who hate themselves. And the hatred may have come from some circumstance that lied to you, some abusive situation, some tragedy that told you that you have no value to offer to the world. And because of that, now you hate yourself. And because you hate yourself, you can love no one, not even God. So then how, how on earth am I to fulfill these commandments? The problem with the law, including these two, is that they are completely dependent upon a person's works or themselves. Galatians 2.16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. This was an Old Testament principle that Jesus was quoting. And all Old Testament principles are based upon yourself. They're all based upon your performance, they're all based upon your flesh and your works and your actions. And because you are the linchpin in the, the, the law being operative, it always fails because human flesh is frail and will always fail. So we cannot fulfill these laws because if we don't love ourselves. And there's so many people, even in this audience, you hate yourself. You cry yourself to sleep. You try different medications to deal with the depression and with the loneliness and the insecurity because you hate yourself. Now, to deal with this loophole and fulfill the law, Jesus had to create a new commandment. Jesus is having his last supper in our main text. Jesus is having his last supper with his disciples and then he does the unthinkable. John 13, verse 12. Why don't you look at this? John 13, verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. Notice this. He says, I have given you an example. That ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy, notice this, happy are ye if ye do them. The Greek word that's used here, for example, uh, it, it can be translated pattern and sample, a sign suggestive of anything, or an example of imitation. So first, Jesus gives them an example of the commandment he is about to give them. 
He does this to make the connection between the command and its application. He sets this example of as a, per, a perpetual pattern to follow to ensure that the command is not misunderstood or abused. Because when you see it demonstrated, there is no room for misunderstanding. You can have a visual a cue. You have something to, to imitate and to exemplify. So he's made a connection now between the theoretical and the actual. He's made a, co- a connection between his commandment and its application. Now look what he says in our main text. John 13 verse 34. He then gives them the commandment that he wants them to follow. John 13 34. A new commandment I give unto you. That ye love one another as I have loved you. That ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. If ye have loved one to another. Now what Jesus has done here is absolutely revolutionary. Firstly, he made a direct connection between the commandment and its application. By demonstrating it, making it error proof. And secondly, he has shifted the point of reference for love. Which is the highest aspect of the law from us to him. Himself, thus establishing the precedent for all human action. Prior to this, the two greatest commandments were impossible to fulfill because they didn't have an example to follow. Remember, I said earlier that without an example of law, an example, laws are meaningless. The reason why many believers in Christ fail in their walk because they don't understand how to love. They'd understand because at some point they are looking at Jesus as their example. So now, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. I'm loving my neighbor as Jesus loves me. It's no longer based upon me or how I feel about myself. It's based upon how much Jesus loves me. And the reason why you're struggling in your walk with God, because you are trying to love your neighbor as yourself, without understanding how Jesus loves you. If you don't understand how Jesus loves you, you can't love anybody. How are you supposed to represent Christ when you don't even know the one you're representing? You don't even understand or comprehend the principle that he is. For the Bible says that God is love. He shifted from relying on our performance. What if I don't love myself? Doesn't matter if you don't love yourself. I love you. Love as love others as I love you. It's no longer dependent upon your insecurities. It's no longer dependent upon your fallacies, the things that you're vulnerable and you hate about yourself. It's dependent on this reality, this one truth, the highest ideal in philosophy, that God loves the sinner. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God commended his love towards us, that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Because he gave me an example of how to love, I now know how to love. I now know now how to love my neighbor as myself. I know now how to love God with all of my heart and all of my soul because he loves me with all that he has. And the reason why you're falling and you're faltering and you're failing and you're unfaithful is because at some point you're looking at something else as an example of what love is. You're looking to Netflix and you're looking to all the the Hallmark movies and you're looking to all the other relationships that are just as jacked up as yours. And because of that, you don't know how to love anybody. You're looking to the love songs to try and teach you about love when all these people are divorced or sexual perverts themselves. And yet we base our love on that and we wonder why the divorce rates are so high. 
Because you need a good example. Because without an example, laws are meaningless and they can be abused and they can be corrupted. And without them, laws, there's lawlessness. You need to look at, at Jesus as your example. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. Looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him. Endured the cross despising the shame. And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You're wearied and faint because you're not looking at Jesus and how to love him. This person is frustrating me. This person betrayed me. But God tells me I'm supposed to love them as myself when I don't even love myself. But then when I look at Jesus and see how he loves me in my depravity, in my sorrow, in my isolation, in my self-loathing and hatred, in myself being, being despicable of myself. I look at how God loves me and I have an example of how to love everyone else around me. The failure to understand how God's love is that which undergirds the failure and the implementation of all scripture. You cannot fulfill the two greatest commandments unless you understand the new commandment. To love as God loved you. Jesus gave us the new commandments so that we could fulfill the two greatest ones. And if we don't understand this, we cannot love ourselves, or we cannot love our neighbors as ourselves, and we cannot love God. 1 John 2, 4 says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected hereby know we that we are in him he that saith he abideth him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked to live even as jesus lived ephesians 5 1 says be ye therefore followers of god as dear children walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to god for a sweet smelling savor the way we keep his commandments is by following his example and understanding how he loves us. How he loves us. We hear so many times in marriages that we split up because, well, I just fell out of love with him. We just fell out of love. I want to show you how you stay in love with Jesus. John 59, as the Father have loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. So, if understanding God's love for us is the key, then how do we understand it? First, we need to understand what God's love truly is. I'm going to do my absolute best to communicate the revelation that the Lord gave me so many years ago. Turn with me to Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, Against such, there is no law. And what we see here are what is often described as the nine fruits of the Spirit, but that is inaccurate. They are not nine fruits. They're actually just one. The one fruit is love. If you notice, the word there for fruit is singular. 
And what you're seeing, everything that follows after, is actually describing what God's love is. And I'll prove it to you. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going somewhere this. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4. I want to show you how awesome God's love is. 1 Corinthians 13 4. Charity. Now the Greek word there for charity, charity is agapio. It's the word for God's love. So you could replace this word charity for God's love because what love is, it's in action. Love is an action word. We think love is a feeling. It's an emotion, some sort of Twitter patient in our heart or something. No, love is an action. It's a doing. It's not based upon emotion whatsoever. It's about doing good for better, for worse, in sickness and health, for richer and poor. Regardless of environmental circumstance or regardless of your response, I have made a choice to love you, to be good to you. My love for you has nothing to do with you necessarily or what you respond to me. I'm going to be good to you because I've chosen to be. So they chose the word charity because that's love in action. Love suffers long. That's long-suffering. That's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Love is kind. That's gentleness. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. That's meekness. Doth not behave itself unseemly. That's goodness. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. That's peace and temperance. Seeketh no evil. That's goodness again. Because God's goodness and mercy, it follows me all the days of my life. He had to put it in there twice. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoice in the truth. That's joy. Beareth all things, believeth all things. There's faith. Hopeth all things, endureth all things. That's temperance. Charity never or love never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. I want you to understand, inside of God's love is joy. Inside of God's love is peace. Inside of God's love is long suffering. That God has had to put up with my foolishness all my life. Inside of God's love is temperance and self-control. That when he could have hit me with a lightning bolt for me screwing up again, he controlled himself and looked at the blood of Jesus and said, I'm going to have mercy on him. Inside of him is goodness. Good God, he is so good unto me when I don't deserve it. Morning by morning, his mercies I see. It's because of his compassions that they fail not. That's what's God's love. God's love is meek and humble that the God of the universe, he who humbles himself just to behold the angels in heaven, lowered himself to become a baby and died on a wooden cross for a sinner and a wretch like me. Inside of him is faith because even when I gave up on myself and didn't believe in myself, God believed in me and said I can save him and raise him up and make him a man of God. You don't understand how much God loves you. God is madly in love with you, pursuing you, serenading you with every sunrise. He's, he's, he's romancing you with every blow of the wind and every crash of the waves on the seashore. You have a not-so-secret admirer who has put a love story in the heavens themselves. The Bible says in Psalm 19, one that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork, his love for you. But yet we ignore his serenades. We ignore his pursuit. We go after those who cannot truly love us. Those who abuse us. Those who are myopic. Those who are blind and cannot comprehend the value of that what we are. But Jesus could look past the stains. Jesus could look pa- past the leaks. Look past the cracks. Look past all the mistakes and all the frailties uh, and imperfections in this frame. This human temporal 
ball of clay and see value in it and die on a cross for it. Jesus. This one thought, this revelation of how that Jesus loves me would bring me prostrate on the floor in my bedroom for hours and I would weep uncontrollably understanding that God loves me. Because I had been rejected by someone I had loved and had lost all sense of value and thought I was worthless and unlovable. But then when I read in Isaiah 53 where it says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and that the chastisement of our peace was upon him and that with his stripes that we are healed. When I comprehend the love of Jesus Christ that it's able to plunge in the very depths of hell itself and rescue it and cause it to become the very righteousness of God. When I look under the eyes of Jesus and as he looks at me with undying, unwavering love, I am shaken and quaken to the very core of my being. Every molecule within me shakes and shudders at the thought of the Savior, the Creator, loving me. It brought me out of the worst depression of my life. Because I realize, if nobody else loves me, Jesus loves me. When I didn't even love me, he loves me. And he showed me how he loves me by dying on the tree. It's a new commandment. This is why the church doesn't have love in it because they don't understand how God loves them. And because they don't understand it, they cannot implement it. And so the ch- people can't even identify the church because Jesus said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. Jesus left us, and close with this. Jesus left us an example or a model so that we could comprehend how he loves us. And this model is called marriage. It's called marriage. It's why that marriage has been under assault from the beginning. Why we're having Supreme Court cases of even trying to define what marriage is or even what a woman is. Why? Because marriage is the, is the foundation for how a society is formed. From marriage, identity of the male and the female and how they interact is defined. And so if marriage is destroyed, if marriage is corrupted and perverted, then there is lawlessness. Because there's no example of how to act. This was my understanding when I got married. Let me tell you something. For all of you that are single... And this is a revelation, again, that I got during this time period. That people look at marriage and they think that once they get it, that that's going to make them happy. Let me explain something to you. Marriage is like a bank account. And a lot of y'all trying to get in a relationship, making all the withdrawals, and you didn't invest anything in it. And now you're getting overdraft fees because of insufficient funds. You don't get married to get something. You get married because you have something to invest. 
I've been trying to explain this to couples for years, but they always don't, they don't listen to me. When I got married, I didn't get married because I was lonely. I got married because I had such a revelation of God's love. I was bursting from every molecule and pore of my body. I needed to share it with somebody. I was looking for someone to display God's love on. I want to read to you, and this is my anniversary, so I'm going to, I'm going to brag a little bit. I'm going to read to you a poem I wrote for my wife. Too bad she's not here to hear it. She's heard it before anyway. This describes how I feel about her. And this describes how God feels about you. I call this poem The Canvas. Commanding the commencement of collection, a painter gathered his colorful selections in the direction of his newfound affection. A window with a white complexion. A canvas, although an absent section, won the election of his perfection. It stood submissively waiting for the connection of a caretaker to convey the painter's reflection. Contemplating carefully his craft, the painter confidently coerced a draft. A caretaker indeed, he laughed, for his creation would now be staffed. A brush, although brown and bristling, was drowned glistening with a hue of red. Listening closely to what the painter said, it realized that it had been chosen above its brethren's heads. It thought what an honor to be the one to tread. So on it fled to the canvas's stead, commissioned to be the caretaker, the painter sled on this snow-white bed. With one massive stroke of the brush, the painter provoked the canvas to blush with a lush crimson stream into its once-white theme. Both the brush and canvas beamed as they gleamed with the painter's dream, which now had been made to be seen. When the brush and canvas first met, they knew it was a moment they would never forget. As the color set, they decided to let the moment linger, the moment when they were brought together by the painter's fingers. Like a ringer, the canvas and brush called again for the painter to be the bringer together of the two singers. Harmonizing, they sang in the melody of red and white until the painter changed the sight. Brown took flight and then golden light. Blue soon showed its might along with a purple bite. <clears throat> like a symphony conductor with his wand, the painter went on and on, depicting an image that surpassed words and beyond. The frog had found its pond, just as the brush had found its bond with the canvas. A relationship the two had grown quite fond of. With a final colorful shove, that's it, the painter exclaimed. I'll call it love. For in the painter's hands, the brush and canvas fit like a glove. Although this seems to be a tale of art, it's actually the story of marriage in three parts. From start to finish, the parts never diminish nor extinguish inside of each other's hearts. God is the painter, you see. The canvas was my wife-to-be. And the brush is the husband. That's me. For when God brought us together, my love, my canvas, I, I turned into we. Plants turned into trees. And rivers turned into seas. He used me with each stroke of his hand to display on you his master plan. Red for the blood that was shed. For after he bled, he said, it is finished, and then rose from the dead. Brown for the cross to which he was nailed. Yet he prevailed as he wailed, Father, forgive them for those who falsely hailed. Gold for the travesty that befell his majesty, even though it was our sin that was in dire need of amnesty. Blue for the living water that flowed from the potter and baptized us to be his sons and daughters. Purple for his royalty and to show our loyalty to the king of grace, for now we have been counted worthy to look upon his face. My beautiful canvas, that's why we met 
That's why these colors are now set into the depths of, my, of your soul. I lost all control when I realized the goal of my role. I'm just a pole whose heart you stole. That's what I thought when God dipped me in the bowl. Through us, he made an amazing picture, a fixture of his mixture. His word is spoken, giving us this token that the three-stranded cord is not easily broken. When others see us, may they see him. As their eyes swim at the side of our limbs, interwoven together like a net and a rim. May his spirit become bright and brim as our fleshly desires go dark and dim. May Satan's dominion be trimmed as we fast and slim. May Christ advance as we glance at each other's stance. With every chance, we will show him in our circumstance. My beautiful canvas, you are the object of my affection. For in you I see his complexion, his perfection, and his reflection. It's his resurrection that makes me gush with this romantic mush. But what else can I do? He's the painter, and I'm the brush. You are a canvas that God wants to display his love on. Every time I look into the eyes of my beautiful wife and I'm overcome with love for her, I am reminded of that is exactly how God is feeling about me right now. And when I realize that it brings me to my knees, realizing how much God loves me. I'm just a brush that God is using to paint the picture of his love on my canvas. That's how God looks at you, church. He looks at you like a canvas. Your life may be blank, may be empty, having nothing, but God sees such potential in the void and he's able to paint a picture of mercy and grace like you've never seen before. If you would stand, I'm quitting. A new commandment. God has given us a new commandment and that is to love each other as he loves us. That's why he said in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Do you not understand how much God loves you? It is an amazing thought. The psalmist said in Psalm 8.3, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visit? What... Why are you dealing with this nasty bag of dust? Why would you die and suffer for me? Do you not comprehend how great the love of Jesus is? The verse I quoted earlier, Romans 5, 8. But God committed his love towards us that while we yet sinners, Christ died for us. The verses that precede that explain that Jesus didn't come to die for the righteous. He didn't die. Look, it's hard to find someone to take a bullet for a good guy, for an honorable person. Jesus took a bullet for Jeffrey Dahmer. Jesus took a bullet for Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or John Lennon or Osama bin Laden or for ISIS. Jesus took a bullet for the rapist, for the child molester. He died for the child molester. That's unfathomable. That's irrational by human thinking. 
But that is how great his love is for you. And until you comprehend that Jesus loves you and how he loves you and laying down his life, being selfless, not selfish, you will never be able to fulfill the two greatest commandments that are in the scripture, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Never. I offer you this opportunity to learn and to fulfill the new commandment. To experience the love of Jesus as I have. That revelation that I got, I can remember being on my bedroom floor weeping. Weeping uncontrollably when I realized that God had loved me. And that single thought propelled me out of my depression. And propelled me out of my insecurity. Because nothing else mattered. And I said to God, even if I find no one else, you are more than enough for me. And let me tell you something. If the love of Jesus won't satisfy, what on earth makes you think that somebody else will? If the love of Jesus is not good enough for you, then what else is? You think that good-looking man or that good-looking young woman is going to satisfy you? You are sadly mistaken. They are imperfect. They are flawed. They make mistakes. But God who is perfect and righteous and wonderful, He has never failed me yet. And He'll never fail you. You're a canvas. Come to the altar and allow the paintbrush of God's spirit and his word to stroke you on the canvas and to paint the redemption he wants to show that your soul is clean and righteous by the shed blood of Jesus Christ it's time to fulfill the new commandment and when you fulfill God's new commandment you will be able to love your neighbor as yourself You'll be able to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind because you understand how much he loves you. When everyone else abandons me and everyone else betrays me and everyone else is not there and forsakes me, God is always there. He said, I'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You can't divorce him. You can't get rid of him. <laughs> He's behind you. He's in front of you. He's beside you. He's above and beneath you. And he desires to be in you. Right now, throughout this congregation, I want you to contemplate the love of God. Look at the nail-scarred hands. Look at the wound in his side. Look at the crown of thorns that have been thrust into his skull that's causing blood to trickle down his face. Look at the battered and bruised face of Jesus. Look at him.